0: Well, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The world of social media has popularized the idea of relationship status. And if you look around the room this morning, I think what you will see is people in all kinds of different relationship statuses. Uh, Some of you this morning are single, having never been married, and, and you might not actually have any real interest in marriage. Maybe you're quite content and grateful for the state that you are in, or you might seriously long for marriage or long to be married someday, or even right now you might be dating someone and even be seriously thinking about marriage. Uh, Some of you, though, are single having been previously married. Uh, Some of you maybe enjoyed several years of a wonderful marriage, and your spouse has since died, and that was no doubt very painful, difficult, and, and may very well still be. Others of you are divorced uh, and have gone through a marriage that is broken, and that was probably also a very, very painful time. Some of you are married, and you might be married for the first time, and others of you may be married for the second or third time. You might be in a happy marriage, or you might be in a very difficult marriage. You might be married to another Christian, or you might be married to an unbeliever, And perhaps you might even think that your status gives you some kind of significance or on the flip side, you may wonder or feel as if your status somehow makes you a second class Christian of some kind or not as spiritual as you would be if your relationship status were different. Whatever your status is, you might actually be wondering if a change in relationship status would somehow in some way be beneficial And you are certainly not the first, nor will you be the last, to wonder that. Though we're not certain of the exact situation that was going on in Corinth, one does get the idea that the Corinthians may have been wondering, what is the the most spiritual relationship status? If so, they may have been actually leaning in the direction of singleness. And such a view might lead one actually to avoid marriage altogether, Or if you are married, it might lead one to get out of the marriage that one is currently in. Uh, Whether that's what was going on in Corinth or not, I'm really not sure that we know for certain. But regardless, what God says as he addresses people of different marital states in this text is going to be extremely, extremely helpful to all of us. You need to take God's counsel on your marital status. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to begin in verse 7 and read down through verse 16. Paul writes, he says, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Before we jump into this text together, I just want to make a, a couple of preliminary comments. First, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is not a complete theology by any means of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's not going to answer all of our questions. In fact, what it's very likely to do is actually raise some questions in our mind. Uh, Paul is simply addressing the specific situation uh, or the context in Corinth. And a second comment as we begin, as we look at this text, some of you may... Um, As we work our way through it, actually feel a sense of some kind of guilt over uh, a past decision or perhaps divorce. And I just want to say this if you are rightly related to God today, then I would remind you of the words of Philippians 3 13 to 14. Paul writes there, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And if you have sinned in, in some way based on this text and you've confessed that to God, I just want to remind you, God's a God who forgives. And assuming that you biblically dealt with the past or whatever has happened, then God would admonish you, live in the present. Live your life for Jesus. God has awesome, great plans for your life and ministry and service to him. All right, let's look together at three marital states that Paul addresses in this text and the counsel that he gives in each of those situations. Uh, The first marital state that he addresses is the unmarried. If you are unmarried... Take God's counsel. In verse 8, Paul speaks directly to the unmarried and the widows. That's his phrase. And that phrase includes uh, those whose spouse had died. In fact, I I would imagine that that's probably his primary focus in these two verses. And I think that one could very uh, easily make a case for that, that he's specifically speaking to widows and widowers. But I think it's also very possible that he's speaking to those who have never been married at all. And then a third possibility would be that in these first few verses uh, that he would also speak, be speaking to those not at fault in a divorce that God and Scripture would make allowance for. And, and kind of in the classic view on that, that would be cases of adultery, uh, Matthew's exception clause, which we'll see in just a moment, and also cases of desertion where Paul will see makes an exception here in verse 15. But God gives two pieces of counsel to you if you are unmarried. And the first is that singleness is a good thing worth valuing. Uh, Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Singleness is not some kind of condition to be rid of. Like a sickness that a person just needs to kick and that is undesirable and and not good. Singleness is a good thing, Paul writes. And so don't discount your singleness or the singleness of another person and don't waste your single years or wish them away. The Bible teaches that singleness should be valued and uh, you could certainly value it for selfish, sinful reasons. A person could value being single because it just affords them to make their life all about them with nobody else in the picture. But it could be valued for the right reasons. In God's eyes, singleness should be valued for many, many wonderful reasons, which he will address. We'll see um, more later in this chapter. In grade 12, I went to Haiti with a, a few other men from my church. And the reason that we went, our church supported a missionary Uh, there, uh, a female missionary, a single female missionary who ran a medical clinic. And so there was this clinic under construction in Haiti, and we went to work on the clinic. Well, this female single missionary was a surgeon who had devoted her life to sharing the gospel in Haiti through medicine. And I, I loved my trip. I had a great time. But one of the things that really struck me was actually this woman. I don't think that she could have done what she was doing to the degree that she was doing it there in Haiti in the service of the Lord as a married woman. I just don't think she could have done it, especially if she had children in the mix. And your singleness really affords you the opportunity to serve the Lord in ways and degrees to which would be very different than if you were married. Uh, Not necessarily superior per se, but different. Singleness is a good thing worth valuing, and that's how God wants you to see it. I would even argue that a biblical view of singleness might save you from marrying the wrong person. If singleness is viewed as a bad thing to be avoided, then what happens is you very quickly end up in a state of desperation. My wife and I are acquainted with a woman who desperately longed to be married, a very appropriate desire, by the way. But marriage for this uh, young woman could not happen fast enough. And she went through university. She she then went through grad school. And she was yet at that time to find a man. And then one day, a young man came along and into her life. And very soon after that, an engagement was announced. And my wife and I, we, we knew both of these people. And once we heard that, we were immediately concerned because this young man, frankly, didn't evidence any fruit of being a Christian there was nothing in his life that pointed to the fact that he was a follower of Jesus. In fact, there were several things that pointed in the opposite direction. Within a few years, they had a child and shortly thereafter, he just up and walked away. A proper view of singleness will help you trust God's timing. Singleness is a a good thing worth valuing and it's crucial for you to see it as God does as a very, very good thing. However, it may not be God's long-term plan for your life. Singleness is a good thing worth valuing, and simultaneously, marriage is a good thing worth considering. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, This verse has, by the way, been grossly misinterpreted. Over the years, in a way that has implied that uh, marriage is some kind of lesser option for people who aren't very spiritual and who can't control their sexual passions and desires. That's not what this verse is saying. What it's saying is that you might have gifts other than celibacy. Look back at verse 7. Paul said there, he said, I wish that all were as myself am. And he was single. Living a celibate life, I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul speaks of celibacy in that verse as if it's actually a spiritual gift. And we might understand that gift to be something like freedom from desire for sexual fulfillment or the gift to be single and not be consumed by sexual desire. God gifts some people that way, and it is a great, great gift. According to verse 7, celibacy is a genuine gift, but Paul makes quite clear, listen, it's not the only gift. God in his wisdom has gifted each of us in different ways, and I think we would recognize, and we'll see this even later in the book of 1 Corinthians, that gifting is a sovereign work of God. You might have gifts other than the gift of celibacy and there's nothing wrong with that. So Paul says, he continues in verse nine, it's better to marry than to burn. Look at verse nine. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. God created Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden, unclothed. And he said to them, he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Way back at the very beginning of the Bible. Marriage and sexual intimacy are God's uh, good creation plan. And any view of this text that lowers those things is faulty. Intimacy is a natural God-given human desire. And there's nothing spiritual about denying yourself the God, a God-honoring marriage and all the pleasures that come within that marriage. Marriage is not an inferior decision to celibacy and to singleness. Paul cites burning with sexual passion as one reason to get married, but I think we need to recognize that that's obviously not the only reason. And we could go several other places in Scripture and find reason, good reason after good reason, why a man and a woman should get married. He's just giving one reason, and he's giving this reason here instead of others, Because it relates specifically back to what he said in the opening of this chapter in verse 1. This is the matter that he's addressing. Celibacy and sexual relations. Please don't misunderstand. Just because you are burning with passion does not necessarily mean that you should get married. As I mentioned, the Bible gives several other reasons to get married. And if, if you can't check those boxes, it's not a good thing. And so I'd say to you, if you are unmarried, take God's counsel. Remind yourself of God's view on singleness. As some of you, you, you may be single right now, and you're wondering, you know, why hasn't this guy come along, or, or why hasn't this young lady come along? And, and maybe you're really struggling with that. And i just remind you, what does God say about being single? He says it's an amazing, amazing thing, a good thing. And you want to make sure that you're reminding yourself of what God said. Also, by way of application, I would say this. Watch out for things that arouse burning before it's time. You know, if you don't want it to burn with sexual passion, then don't play with fire. And there are so many ways and there are so many opportunities in our society where you're just getting bombarded with this and bombarded with that, where, where this becomes the consuming thing on your mind. Or if you're dating someone, the standards that you put in place that by which you choose to operate as, as a dating couple, those things are going to determine, uh, in many ways, um, the burning or, or that, that is going on in that relationship. So if you don't want to burn with sexual passion, don't play with fire. Paul addresses the second marital state. If you are married, take God's counsel In verse 10, Paul, he uses the language, he speaks to those, to the married, he says. Uh, And the next section that we'll look at in just a moment makes clear that these verses that we're about to look at, verses 10 and 11, Paul is addressing here marriages in which, which both husband and wife are professing Christians. If that is you, and for many of you, that's the case, what does God say to you? Well, what he says here is really quite simple. First, leaving your spouse breaks God's command. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then he flips it around the other direction. And the husband should not divorce his wife. The word separate there is synonymous with the word divorce at the end of that section. It's talking about the same thing. In his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ prohibited divorce. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul is summarizing the teaching of Jesus. And he's basically saying that that's what he is doing. That's what's going on with the phrase when Paul says, not I, but the Lord. Some have read that phrase and then there's a similar phrase at the beginning of verse 12. And they've concluded from those phrases somehow that there are two levels of authority in this text. There's Christ's authority and then there's Paul's. It's like Paul is saying, "Well, here's what Christ said, and here's my opinion," but that's not at all what is going on. All that Paul is saying in verse ten is that this teaching that he's sharing in verses ten and eleven is not original with him. He's saying Jesus taught this. When Paul gets then to verse twelve and he, he and he explains that what he's about to address there, uh, the language that he uses, is he's saying. Uh, In the next verses, verses 12 to 16, he says, I say this. What he's saying is Jesus didn't specifically address this in his earthly ministry. I'm addressing it now. And so when Paul speaks in those verses, he speaks with divine authority. You do not have different levels of authority in this text. In verses 10 and 11, Paul summarizes what Jesus taught. What is that? Well, namely, that divorce is prohibited Jesus gave one exception to that in the case of sexual immorality, and it's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. I'll I'll read that passage to you just uh, because I think it's helpful maybe to bring into this. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, that last phrase is often referred to as the exception clause. He's making one exception here. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery so quite clearly then leaving your spouse breaks God's command and that's what Jesus said in the gospels that's what Paul is reaffirming here in 1 Corinthians and to add that to that we could say leaving your spouse leaves you with two options look at verse 11 but if she does if this woman does if a woman does separate from her husband she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. What's this verse doing? Well, it's recognizing that someone might disobey Christ's command. Or that even as Paul writes this letter, there could be people in the Corinthian church at that time, Christian marriages that have been broken apart and divorces occurred. If you leave your spouse... God says you have two options. Option number one is that you can remain unmarried. Re- remarriage in that scenario is not an option. Or option number two, you can reconcile with your spouse. And that would certainly be God's desire. He's a reconciling God. So option number two is that you can work through it and get back together as a married couple. Now, obviously, if you leave your spouse and then your spouse remarries, that's no longer an option and you are to remain unmarried. So the overarching principle, though, is that God wants you to stay married to your spouse. Obviously, there could be a situation where a wife or children were in danger, where perhaps there's abuse of some kind. And in a scenario like that, it would certainly warrant getting out of that living situation and getting the kids to safety, getting everyone to safety. However, doing so doesn't necessarily require divorce if you are married, take God's counsel. Don't leave your spouse. Uh, some of you may be sitting here and your marriage may be struggling. It may be really, really struggling. And it may be on the brinks or it may be headed in a, a, a very bad direction. And if that is you, I would absolutely love to help you. I'd love to pray for you. Uh, would love to help you seek to follow the Lord in your marriage. Also, the best way to avoid marital crisis is for both parties to invest in your marriage and spiritual well-being in an ongoing way. Invest into that. And invest, and invest, and invest. And it's so important for you as a husband and wife to both be pursuing God as individuals and together. And even if you do have biblical grounds for the divorce, recognizing Matthew's exception clause... And maybe something has happened in your marriage and these things do happen. The sin happens. And maybe one spouse commits adultery and there's infidelity and and that becomes exposed and things blow up. and, And what happens in those moments is, well, let's end this thing. Even if you do have grounds for divorce, I would caution you from rushing into that. God might just want to restore your marriage and put the gospel On display in some pretty, pretty amazing, amazing ways. I've sat with people literally right after something has been come out into the into the surface—some infidelity, some adultery—and it has literally just come out. And I think in those moments, it's just—it's over. I don't want anything to do with you, and there's so much hurt and there's so much pain. And I think there's wisdom on the pastoral side in just counseling people. This is awful. This is sinful. But can I encourage you to just slow down and let's see how God works. And God is a God who restores and he forgives. And I think there's wisdom in not being in any kind of rush. The third marital state, if you are married to an unbeliever, take God's counsel. In verses 12 to 16, Paul speaks, uh, he says, to the rest to everybody else, uh, to the rest of married people in the church. And what becomes clear is that he's speaking to Christians who are married to unbelievers. A brother or sister in Christ, we'll see in in these verses, who's married to an unbelieving spouse. And I suspect that there were many people in that scenario in the Corinthian church as the gospel uh, began to advance through the region of Corinth. As the gospel was preached and proclaimed and as people shared it with their friends and neighbors, sometimes whole houses came to Christ all together at once. And other times, maybe just a a single individual from a household put their faith in Christ. Some of you, many of you, are in that exact same scenario. I know every week here at Beaumont Baptist Church, many of you faithfully worship here without your spouse. We have several people week after week, who do that. And we are so glad that you are here. And those of you in that position know that it is quite the dynamic. Because what you have is in what should be your closest of all human relations, there is a disconnect on the most foundational level. You and your spouse differ on what is the most fundamental and foundational of all things, Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you, as we look at this passage, listen, you're not alone. You are not alone. And uh, I want to encourage you that your scenario has been quite common throughout the history of the church. It was common in Corinth, so common. Paul's, Paul's addressing it. And actually, if you just look at the volume of words at this text that we're looking to, there's more volume of words given to this uh, people in this particular state than any of the others. I think this is extremely common in Corinth. And throughout the history of the church, it's coming today. And just as God gave his people grace then, God's going to give you his grace now. How does God counsel you? Well, these verses teach that staying married should be your plan. God is quite clear that you do not need to seek a divorce. You shouldn't seek a divorce. The basic principle is this. If your spouse is willing to stay, then stay married. Look at verses 12 and 13. To the rest, I say, I not the Lord. Again, Paul's saying this is this is not uh, my opinion here. He's just saying Jesus Christ did not address this in his earthly ministry. To the rest, I say, I not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. When you came to Christ. That changed your marriage in ways that you probably would have never imagined or envisioned in a million years. And your spouse may be wondering right now, who are you and what have you done with my wife? Who are you and what have you done with with my husband? Who are you and what have you done to our family? Things have changed. But if your spouse is willing to stay in the marriage, then God says, stay. Stay. Don't divorce your spouse. Then notice what God says next. If if your spouse is willing, your spouse and kids will benefit from that. Paul is about to address something that I think is very important. and was probably on people's minds uh, there in Corinth. You may think or fear that in some way the union of your soul or body with an unbeliever renders you and your marriage somehow unholy and spiritually defiled. And actually, you could very quickly reason that way with your Bible wide open. Because God commands believers not to marry unbelievers. And you even have some Old Testament uh, precedent in the book of Ezra where, where uh, believing people were divorcing their pagan wives. You could come to that conclusion with your Bible open. Open. You might think or fear that your unbelieving spouse contaminates the marriage in some way, even though you may love them dearly. That would be, as I said, a very, very logical conclusion. But Paul makes clear, actually quite the opposite is true. A Christian spouse is a channel of God's grace to the unbelieving spouse, and God blesses the whole family through that one believing spouse. The language of holiness And uncleanness is uh, typically used in a moral sense. Why don't you look with me at what God says here in verse 14. He's giving his rationale or even explanation for, for why you should stay in the marriage and not divorce your spouse. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Uh, When you read that language of holiness and uncleanness, it takes us back to the Old Testament and uh, the Old Testament law. But that language of holiness and uncleanness is typically, when it is used, we think of morality. We think of right and wrong and good and bad. Is God somehow saying in this verse that a, a Christian spouse makes the unbelieving household moral? Or that by there being one saved person in the marriage that, that that spouse becomes saved and the children do too by virtue of the, the, the fact that there's one person that, that's trusted Christ? No, he's not saying anything like that. Those things can't be what he's saying. There's so many other scriptures that would say, no, that, that's not what he's talking about. Holy also conveys the idea, as many of you know, of being set apart. And I could spend a whole sermon explaining what I think is going on here from the Old Testament. But I think the basic idea would be something like this. By being married to you, God has set your spouse and also your children apart. What has he set them apart for? God has set them apart for the gospel in a special way that will hopefully lead to their salvation. God has set them apart for his special attention. And perhaps the best way I could illustrate that is through Old Testament Israel. The Israelites were God's holy people. You remember as they left Egypt and they were there in the wilderness and God entered into a covenant relationship with them where they became his covenant, holy, special, chosen people. However, that didn't mean that every Israelite was a believer. You ever thought about that? Like, were they all saved? Because they were God's special people? No, absolutely not. But every Israelite, we might say, in one sense, was holy or set apart in some way to God as his special people. And he gave them the covenants and the the promises and his word and all these special blessings to ethnic Israel. Ethnic Israel was set apart to God for his focused attention in a way that the Gentiles were not. And they benefited from that. And in your home, it may be very much the case as well. You've got a, a family unit, and there are people in that home, maybe just one person, just you, who is a true follower of Jesus. And the rest of your family is not. And yet God has put a special focused attention on your family and on your home in a way that is intended to benefit that whole family. You don't need to seek divorce God would very much encourage you, if your spouse is willing to stay, stay. And yet on the flip side of that, God would say this as well. You don't need to fight divorce. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, speaking that's the believing party, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. God says, let it be so. Allow it. Your spouse may decide that since you became a Christian, you're no fun anymore. Because you maybe won't engage in the same sinful things that you used to as a couple. Or they may decide, you know, there's just no connection here. We're just so different. And this just isn't worth fighting for anymore. Or I'm not very happy in this marriage. And they may want it to end. And you would certainly want to express your, oh, that's not my, my desire per se. I, I would hate to see that happen. But God says that if your spouse wants divorce, you can let it happen. It's okay. Don't break up the marriage yourself. Let the unbelieving party do that. But if your spouse wants to leave, God says it's okay. You can let them leave. God says that that would be perfectly appropriate. You haven't sinned. You haven't failed. You've actually obeyed in a way that has no doubt been extremely, extremely painful. God makes clear that if your spouse wants a divorce, that you are not bound. Look at verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You are not enslaved. That means that you are not bound to that marriage or even to make it work. It may also mean that you are no longer bound in the sense that you are free to remarry. Uh, That could be concluded perhaps through Uh, that could be inferred perhaps there from that text. And that has been uh, the classic position. You don't need to seek a divorce, God says. You don't need to fight a divorce. But what you need to do, you need to pursue peace. The end of verse 15 says, God has called you to peace. And there's some question about what that phrase ties back to. Is that talking about if your spouse wants a divorce and how you go through those proceedings? And I think that would certainly be the case. It could be that God is teaching that if your spouse divorces you, then you should strive to do that peacefully. More often than than not, divorces are nasty and messy and full of fighting. And God says, you be the peaceful party. And while that certainly could be the intended focus of that phrase that God has called you to peace, I think that Paul is probably tying that phrase back to to really all that he's already said about staying in your marriage and how you do that. If your spouse is willing to stay, then pursue a peaceful marriage with him or her. You seek to make that marriage all that it can be by the grace of God and the scenario that you are in. You seek peace. That's a high call because it's probably going to mean a lot of sacrificing of yourself and that won't come easy. But take heart because staying married could result in your spouse's salvation. Look at verse 16. He begins with the word for and again he's explaining what he just said. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I find that language so interesting because we recognize that God is the one who saves. And yet what God seems to be emphasizing is that actually in God's sovereign work of saving people, you might be the very tool that he uses. God is not saying that your spouse will come to Christ if you stay married. That's no guarantee. That may not happen at all. But God is highlighting that that is possible. God has set your spouse apart by putting a living, breathing gospel light in their midst from day to day, moment after moment, hour after hour, day after day, and that living, breathing gospel light is you. Let me tell you something. Just think about the implications of that. Do you know what that means? That means that God must really, really love your spouse to do that. I mean, God has set apart your spouse For the gospel. By putting you in that marriage and in that household. God must really, really love your spouse. Plan to stay in your marriage and and seek peace without compromise. And maybe one day God and his power, just like he did for you, will summon your spouse to himself. Wouldn't that be amazing? Maybe that would even happen this week. Maybe it would happen 40 years from now. Maybe, just maybe, God will do that very thing for your spouse and for your marriage. And I just want to let you know that I'm praying for that. As I said, I know we have many people here in our congregation and you are attending without your spouse, either because they're an unbeliever or perhaps they're not actively following the Lord. And I just want you to know that I I am praying for that as I know that you are. While we're there in verse 16, talking about God saving people, uh, I don't know who's all in their room this morning. But you know that God is actively working and summoning people to faith in himself. And for many of you sitting here, God did that in your life in a very unique way that you look back now and you marvel at. And maybe there are some of you right now sitting in this room, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you do, I don't, I don't know. But maybe God right now in these very moments and in recent events in your life is actively summoning you to himself. And maybe that's even the reason he's brought you here today, hearing God's word preached Because God wants you to know something. He wants you to know that he loves you and that he loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to come die sacrificially on a cross here on earth for you. And shed his blood for you, sacrificing his life to satisfy God's wrath because you're a sinner and deserve that wrath for all of eternity. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, as your substitute to die in your place so that you could have eternal life. And maybe he's brought you to this point so that even right here, now, today, that you might cry out to God and you might say, God, thank you for what you've done for me. Would you save me? And so that you would cry out and and really two things, say, God, I'm a sinner. Will you forgive me? I acknowledge my sin. I don't want my sin. God, I I believe that what Jesus did is enough to save me. Will you save me? Will you make me yours? And God does that. He says, whoever cries on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are married to an unbeliever, take God's counsel. Seek God's grace. God says that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you humbly go to God and say, God, help me. I need your help. I can't do this. He'll give you his grace. And take heart. God is a God who works. He's a God who saves. And pray for the salvation of your spouse, and I just want to encourage everyone here this morning, whoever you are, whether you're single, whether you're married, whoever you are, I hope that as you look at our family, our church family, that you will pray with those who are married to unsaved spouses that God would save their spouse for His glory. So take God's counsel on your marital status. Deviating from that counsel always comes at a cost, always. And on the flip side of that, following God's counsel, though it may be hard, it's always worth it. Always, always worth it. Well, I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me at this time as we conclude.